Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. Kitchener, a talk by Alan Bridgman. Please note that the talk refers to a book written by G.W. Stevens, a war correspondent in the 1899 campaign and is written in the style of the time. Uh, good morning, one and all. My talk today is based entirely on a book by, written by a journalist, G.W. Stevens, who was a war correspondent in Egypt in 1899 uh, for the British press. In fact, he was writing for the Daily Mail. But that doesn't disqualify him from consideration, in my view. And he wrote the book in a manner which has practically disappeared today, in that he wrote in the English language, accurately, honestly, and with full and proper punctuation. <laughs> I bought this book in 1990 for the sum of 60 pence, and it has prospered in unison with all my other investments, it's now worth nearly 65 pence, I would say. Uh, I would recommend it uh, to you all. It tells the story of a war correspondent embedded with the British Army in Egypt and the Sudan. Now, I'm not generally a fan of journalists, few police officers are, but I make an exception in the case of Mr Stevens who describes the everyday adventures of a privately funded observer of the British Army in action in a far distant corner of the globe. The press were present primarily because of the memory of the death in Khartoum in 1885 of General Gordon, which was taught to all school children in my youth and indeed in Norwood. I was unaware why at the time, but you will recall the this was the artistic rendering of uh, his uh, death, and we, we I, I'm sure, have all tended to believe that General Gordon died calmly on the balcony of his residence, as depicted in the painting. That always puzzled me, and in fact, about ten years after he died, his manservant testified that he died fighting, pistol in hand, and was decapitated by his attackers, the Mardists. His death brought to the fore the army of his uh, opponent, the Mahdi, and the Mahdi and his army was still at the fore in 1899. Mr Stevens arrived in Egypt in 1898, and like all travelling journalists at that time, he had to familiarise himself with the locale without the assistance of handheld cameras or satellite television, so he had a proper job to do. He observed the nature of the Egyptian and Sudanese forces which would operate under the control of uh, Kitchener. He observed that the Sudanese were very keen on polygamy and he noted a, a Sudanese requesting permission to marry the sister of his sergeant on the basis that his first wife was a very good cook, but barren, and he wanted a child from a second wife. All parties were willing, he noticed, and permission having been given, they all lived happily ever after. Although I think that's possibly some journalistic imagination uh, at play. He noted uh, the impressive abilities of the 
British NCOs and officers for the supervision and training of Sudanese troops. And he commented, stiffened by marches and fights and cholera camps, broadened by contact with things new and strange, elevated by responsibility cheerfully undertaken and honorably sustained, he is a mirror of soldierly virtue. Does that sound like the British Army we know and love? That's okay. He was equally impressed by the character of Major General Sir Horatio Herbert Kitchener, who was at that time 48 years of age and stood six foot six inches tall. A little known fact, certainly to me. He described him as, he has no age but the prime of life, no body but one to carry his mind, no face but one to keep his brain behind. He concludes that Kitchener would be a fine manager of the Army and Navy stores, <laughs> which I imagine would be a different Army and Navy stores to that which we have had. Kitchener's army life started in the Royal Engineers, but he worked as a military vice-consul in Asia Minor before going to Egypt to train the new Egyptian army. In 1890, he became Sirdar, or perhaps even Sirdar, which is the commander-in-chief of the uh, army in existence at that time in uh, Egypt. And he began his long-term planning for an advance south into Sudan. Apparently he insisted on having no married officers in his army, since he is quoted as saying, marriage interferes with work. He is steadfast, cold and inflexible. He has made himself a machine to retake Khartoum. Now Stevens, the journalist, attached himself to the army which was setting off towards Khartoum, and he very soon observed that the British Army boot was a failure in that its stitching gave up after very few miles being marched in the desert of the Sudan. After only a month in the desert, the soles peeled off, revealing not a solid double sole, but shoddy packing between two thin slices of leather. The failure of a man's boots, of course, would result in the loss of a fighting man. And Stevens reported on this and was pleased to see it commented upon in the House of Commons as well as in the War Office. But he did note that elegant words had sought to excuse the War Office from responsibility in the matter. Now there's a surprise. He comments, The history of the army is a string of such disgraces. Each time we ball, someone should be hanged. But nobody ever is hanged. So some things never change, even now. Anyway, journalist Stevens reached Fort Atbara, which is situated at the junction of the Nile with the Atbara River. Here he witnessed the battalion of Sudanese marching out under English officers, and he was greatly impressed. To me, the sight of that magnificent regiment was a revelation. One has got accustomed to associate a black skin with something either slavish or comical. From their faces, these men might have been loafing darkies in South Carolina or minstrels in St. James's Hall. But in the smartness of every movement, in the pride of every private's bearing, what a wonderful difference. This was quite a new kind of black man. Every man a warrior from his youth up. For we, they say, are like the English. We are not afraid. They have seen many Englishmen die. They have never seen an Englishman show fear. What a marvellous line of praise. Would it apply today? 
I leave it to you to decide. Now Stevens noted that the temperature was 100 degrees in the shade and that the army was marching in this heat with soldiers carrying a rifle and nine pounds of kit. Initially, they would march for five miles, starting off at dawn. As the army marched south, they were accompanied by gunboats in the River Nile beside them, which would occasionally spot bands of enemy on the bank and shoot them, often quite successfully. Various companies of soldiers were arriving each day as Kitchener built up the force of 13,000 with which he intended to do battle. Now, the logistics of moving a British army south through arid and hostile desert are considerable. Uh, that's quite without an enemy force likely to take pot shots at you. Native scouts reported enemy movements close to the army column, but none approached it, uh, especially after British army cavalry scouts moved towards them. The column arrived at Fort Atbara, which is situated at the junction of the River Nile and the Atbara River. So this is well south of Cairo. And they arrived on March the 20th, 1898. He uh, observed the countryside around him and he states, in the empty Nile villages, their bones were long ago gnawed white by jackals and hyenas. Their sons were speared and thrown into the river. Their wives and daughters led away to the harems of Omdurman. It is good land for the Sudan in this corner of the two rivers worth perhaps a penny an acre, and the Khalifa, that's the enemy leader, has swept it quite clean and left it soulless. Mr. Stevens was clearly uh, observing the uh, state of the countryside. Now, Stevens describes the, the dust storms which were created by any movement of the cavalry into the camp, which was referred to as the Zariba. And he says it was reminiscent of Blackfriars on a November night, but only as midday to it. Uh, the troops were aware that they were closing in on the enemy, but no massed enemy forces were found. And he notes that they are 1,400 miles from the nearest sea, so they appreciate that the only water supply available is the river beside which they are marching. The first recorded action between the two opposing forces occurred on a Sunday morning at Fort Abbara. A Colonel Hickman had led three gunboats to the scene and landed the 15th Battalion together with 150 Jalin tribesmen. Two rounds of shrapnel were fired by the British and the enemy dervish led the scene. The army stopped. But the Jarlene tribesmen sought permission to pursue the enemy and the local commander said, well, we haven't got horses that you can pursue the enemy on. So they said, well, we'll take the donkeys. So they pursued the enemy on donkey back. Uh, and when they came back, they reported they had slain 160 enemy and taken 645 prisoners, most of them women, obviously some brave individuals amongst the Jarlene. What is significant is that the, the Jalin tribe had annoyed the, the Mahdi several years before and he had murdered as many of them as he could. So they were anxious for revenge and as is usual in any human society, past wrongs are rarely forgotten and even more rarely forgiven. This left the two opposing armies now 20 miles away from each other. Neither of them were exactly sure where the other one was. Reconnaissance patrols were carried out by the Egyptian cavalry, which had been trained by the British for some time. 
but their efficiency was doubted. One uh, British officer reported that he had seen a patrol of Egyptians returning from reconnaissance mission, so he had stood still under a tree to see if they would notice him. Uh, they did not. And journalist Stevens comments, you cannot breed a light, quick-witted scout out of a hundred centuries of serfdom. He will improve with time. Meanwhile, he is still a fella. I quote uh, Stevens, who, of course, was writing over 120 years ago, when political correctness did not exist, and his comments, I'm sure, should be viewed in that light, and uh, I would accept what he says. Now, on March the 30th, a general hunter led out a large patrol and discovered the main camp of the Mahdi and his army at a place called Nakila. Defensive positions had been arranged around it, although not to the standard required by the British Army. Kitchener had to decide whether to, to attack this position or wait for the Mahdi army to fade away to the south. His prime concern was the need to supply an army of 12,000 men by camel transport from Atbara, which was 17 miles to the north. His British battalions were at this time coping with a sickness level of 2%, but dysentery and typhoid were beginning to appear. So Kitchener decided that immediate attack was the only desirable course of action. Meanwhile, General Stevens had returned to, to Fort Atbara for more supplies of gin and soda. They obviously had his priorities, right? Whilst there, he heard firing from upriver and obviously hastened to return to the south, to the front line, by camel. He describes uh, the intense heat. Beating from above and burning from below, the sun strikes at you heavily. There is no way out of it except through the hours into evening. No sound but boot clinking on camel stirrup. You hear it through a haze. You ride along at a walk, half dead. You neither feel nor think. You hardly even know that it is hot. You just have consciousness of a heavy load, hardly to be borne, pressing, pressing down on you, crushing you under the dead weight of sun, which uh, I think is uh, an eloquent description of how damn high it was out there. Uh, and all before air conditioning was invented. He learned on his return that a cavalry reconnaissance had been attacked by the enemy and had sustained losses of six dead and ten wounded. Whereas the other side, the dervish, casualties were reckoned as 200, uh, largely thanks to the fact that the Brits were using Maxim guns, which was an early form of machine gun, of course. Following this uh, initial dispute, Kitchener's army now prepared itself for battle and had set off from its camp at Umdabia at 6 p.m., marched for an hour, then taken water from the river for their horses, rested, and then set off again at 1 a.m., and marched until 4 a.m. The main question was how to get over the enemy camp, which they called a Zariba, which was described as very high, very thick, and very prickly. Someone suggested throwing blankets over it, but Stevens comments, though how you throw blankets over a 10 by 20 foot hedge of camel thorn, and what you do next when you have thrown them, the inventor of the plan never explained. Which was perhaps an early example of Monty Python <coughs> scripts. But the 12,000 strong army was in attack formation at dawn and marched forward the one and a half miles to the defended position. The first British cannon was fired at uh, 0620 
and they continued firing for 80 minutes. Then the infantry advanced directly onto the uh, Zariba in clear and straight lines of battle with the Union Jack flying in the centre. At this point, the enemy started to return fire, but still the line of Cameron Highlanders and Seaforths marched forward and into the Zariba. Stevens describes the climax of the battle thus. From now began the killing. Bullet and bayonet and butt, the whirlwind of Highlanders swept over. And by this time, the Lincolns were in on the right and the Maxims, galloping right up to the stockade, had withered the left. And the Warwicks, the enemy's cavalry gone, were volleying off the blacks as your beard comes off under a keen razor. Farther and farther they cleared the ground, cleared it of everything like a living moon, like a living man, for it was left carpeted thick enough with dead. It seems to me that we, we often uh, overlook the uh, savagery of hand-to-hand battle because uh, we are of 20th century inhabitants, aren't we? And everything is done as it is on the telly, which is fairly bloodless. But um, to imagine this sort of savage onslaught occurring in 100 degree heat is uh, certainly chilling to me. Stevens describes the, the horrors of the battlefield. He describes the mutilated uh, corpses, the rotting camels and donkeys, and the general ruination all around. We, who have the luxury of looking back, begin to understand the, the pagan cruelty of such a scene. Those younger humanoids who look forward to battle tend not to see the wicked ruination which will result. This proves yet again, in my view, that there is no better teacher than experience, and experience appears to be in short supply these days. The Mahdi was captured uh, during this battle and was brought to meet Kitchener. He stated that he was doing his duty as Kitchener was doing his, but then Kitchener had never slaughtered defeated civilians as had the Mahdi. British casualties from a force of 12,000 were 24 dead and 493 wounded. Ultimate dervish casualties were 11,000 dead, 16,000 wounded and 4,000 prisoners of war. Such uh, slaughter seems shocking to us now, although I note that during the 20th century, humankind has expanded its slaughter rate ever since. Stevens comments, in a word, the finest dervish army was not. Retreat was impossible, pursuit superfluous, defeat was annihilation. The British regiments marched back to Fort Atbara, led by Kitchener on horseback, to the adulation of the local population, which watched the Sirdar and his excellencies, these men of fair face and iron hand, just to the weak and swiftly merciless to the proud. Does that sound like a Daily Mail correspondent? Possibly. But I'm sure that's about the size of it at that time. Behind uh, Kitchener marched the Mahdi, Mahmoud, in manacles. And the locals, recognising that he was now a prisoner and defeated, and they felt safe to rejoice. Stevens, the journalist, returned to Cairo, commenting on the huge amount of dust. No tourist comes to Cairo in July, he said. From the caked, sun-riven fields of thirsty Egypt, fresh clouds rise and roll and settle, till in all the train you see, smell or touch uh, and taste nothing but dust. That seems a fairly accurate description of Cairo in uh, the summer. 
Stevens then set off towards Omdurman and Khartoum. The cortege stopped at the ruins of the town of uh, Meteme, which had been sacked by the Mahdi's army some years before. He describes it as the cenotaph of a whole tribe. And he says, that is Mahdism. I find that worth uh, remembering. Because we tend to think of uh, battles fought between two sides and the winner takes all. But uh, of course, in, in the history of mankind, the winner takes as much as he possibly can from the other side. And what he doesn't want, he tends to slaughter, which makes you consider the wonderful history of mankind. But let's not get too depressed. In September 1891, the Battle of Omdurman occurred. Stevens reports in detail on this battle, which involved a full frontal attack by the Dervish forces against the British line, which had its back to the River Nile. The Dervish were numbered as being in excess of 30,000 Arabian tribesmen. They were mostly dressed in white robes, as normal, and they were armed with knives, spears, swords and rifles. They charged downhill against fully trained British regiments armed with howitzers, Maxim guns and modern rifles. The result was largely annihilation of the dervishes. On this day they suffered 11,000 dead and 16,000 wounded. British casualties were 387, of which 256 were from native forces. The Khalifa, as the chief enemy leader, fled the battlefield, losing his harem, his cattle and his ability to rule. His status was reduced from chief of state to that of criminal at large, much as Saddam Hussein in Iraq recently. And as I say, history tends to repeat itself. The victorious British forces marched into the city of Omdurman. Stevens noted how decrepit it was in general, especially when filled with the detritus of battle. I reminded myself to quote. This is Omdurman in the view of Stevens. Everything was wretched and foul. They dropped their dung where they listed. They drew their water from beside green sewers. They had filled the streets with dead donkeys. They left their brothers to rot and puff up hideously in the sun. The stench of the place was in your nostrils, in your throat, in your stomach. You could not eat. You dared not drink. Well, you could believe that this was the city where they crucified a man to steal a handful of base dollars and sold mother and daughter together to be divided 500 miles apart to live and die in the same bestial concubinage. Again, I find that a telling description of life under a powerful but fairly barbaric chief. Do correct me if I'm wrong. He says also the, the accursed place was left to fester and fry in its own filth and lust and blood. The reek of its abominations streamed up to heaven to justify us of our vengeance. Two days later, Kitchener led a small force into Khartoum, nearly 14 years after the death of Gordon. Stevens notes that the boats tied up in view of a large and once impressive building which had been the headquarters and scene of death of Gordon. It was now a wreck and a ruin, and in front of it stood the remains of an acacia tree as planted by Gordon. And he says, in that forlorn ruin and that disconsolate acacia, the 
bones of a murdered civilization lay before us. A church service was held there, which was led by chaplains of Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian and Methodist faiths, and the bands played funereal tunes ending with Abide With Me as a tribute to the long-dead Gordon. Many of those present were moved by the mood of the service, and it was said that even Kitchener himself could hardly speak or see. Stevens concludes, Egypt's game is her existence today. The world's game is the downfall of the worst tyranny in the world and the acquisition of a limited opportunity for open trade. The Sudan's game is immunity from rape and torture and every extreme of misery. But he was writing in 1899. And were he to return today, what would he find? He would now find the state of Sudan plus southern Sudan, where rape and torture and misery appear to abound. Yet again, we students of history can confirm that the only lesson learned by mankind from history is that mankind learns nothing from history, unless you're a member of Farnham U3A history group, of course. That's about the uh, size of Stephen's uh, comments. What happened to Kitchener? He was made... On the return to England, he was made a peer. He became Lord Kitchener of Khartoum in 1898. He returned to England and was Chief of Staff for the British Armed Forces from 1900 to 1902. And he was officer in charge of the Second Boer War, where he gained some fame as the man who introduced concentration camps for Boer family prisoners. From a military point of view, he was fighting a, a guerrilla band as his enemy, and he decided, well, they're, they're not fighting with their families, and so if we lock up their families, they might fight less. So he did lock up the families, and that attracted considerable criticism, but he carried on anyway. In 1902, he became uh, officer in command of the army in India, and he stayed there for seven years, and he quarrelled with Lord Curzon, who was uh, the vice-consul. Their argument was clearly fairly major, and it ended with Lord Curzon resigning as vice-consul. In 1909, Kitchener returned to Egypt as consul-general, and he stayed busy there until 1914, when he came back to the UK and uh, was appointed Secretary of State for War, because World War I. Kitchener apparently foresaw a long war, and he organised the biggest volunteer army in UK history. He warned of the difficulty of providing provisions for a long war, but in 1915, Kitchener was blamed for the shortage of shells available for the British Army in 1915. On the 5th of June 1916, he was en route to Russia for negotiations. He was on board HMS Hampshire, and it struck a German mine 1.5 miles east of Orkney. Kitchener was then aged 65. He was one of 737 fatalities, just 12 survivors. His death, uh, and news of his death, caused consternation throughout the land. One man in Yorkshire committed suicide as a result. The king ordered army officers to wear black armbands for a week, and his disappearance caused widespread disquiet. A chap named Lord Alfred Douglas, remember him? He was the chap who was at one time a partner of Oscar Wilde. He alleged that 
Churchill and the Jews had organised Kitchener's death. Churchill objected to that and sued him for criminal libel and uh, Lord Alfred Douglas got six months for that. Because that was in the days when British courts would impose meaningful sentences for anything, which they do not do now. But I won't digress onto that subject, because I would depress you all. General Ludendorff, who was one of the commanding officers of the German forces at that time, said in 1920 that the reason that um, Kitchener's ship hit a mine and sank in 1916 was that Russian communists had notified Germany of Kitchener's intended trip and that he was targeted in fear of his ability to influence the recovery of the Tsarist army because the Russian army was revolting in those days. It still is, they say. But that's just one strain of history which I was unaware of and we can ponder at length on the liability of the Russians for causing the death of one of Britain's great military leaders. But I will advise you all to buy a copy of With Kitchener to Khartoum, and you can see how the British Army used to operate in very hot countries and still come out not only successful but quite cheerful. I was impressed by it, and I hope you are. Thank you. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.